it's very important that we talk about it and stop researchers saying that they are alone in this. Every single participant in my study reported that the exposure to extremist and terrorist content had an influence on their life. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're exploring the topic of researcher safety and mental health, focusing on the particular difficulties facing those working with terrorist or violent extremist content. We'll be asking if there's enough awareness around the subject and what can be done both individually and institutionally to protect the emotional well-being and safety of counterterrorism researchers and practitioners. I'm joined by Olivier Calbergs, head of TechScan Academy, which develops artificial intelligence to detect and analyze extremism and terrorism online. And Kisa White, a trends analyst at the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, or PERIL, at the American University. Researchers in all corners of the globe play an important role in understanding how terrorists and violent extremists are exploiting the internet and how to counter this threat. However, this does expose them to violent or graphic content, hateful narratives, and even direct abuse and threats, all of which can have a detrimental impact on their mental health and sense of safety. Olivier has been gathering the experiences of researchers in the field and the impact their work has had on their mental health. And he says that's when he realized that his own mental health has also been affected. I've been monitoring and analyzing extremism online for quite some time now, and I honestly actually never stood still at the impact that this can have on researchers. I only became aware of, of the effects while I was doing the analysis for, uh, for my project. That is when I started to realize that I also might have been affected by it. In my case, it might be hard to say because of my experience at the a, at a police, but still sometimes, yeah, I, I recognized myself in the responses of, uh, of the participants. It does have a, or, or has an impact on, uh, on, uh, on myself. Kisa says she's been a victim of online harassment herself, and that's how she ended up working as a researcher in this field. A little bit of a backstory, I guess, how I kind of got into this work is when I was an undergrad, my roommate and I, Taylor Dumpson, we were pretty much just sitting in our apartment. We lived together and all of a sudden we get like these notifications on our phone of people like posting on our Facebooks and we were getting like random messages and phone calls and texts. And we're like, who are like, who are these people? And we went online and there was just a lot of harmful, foul things that were said about Taylor online because she was the first female black president at American University. So because of that, they were targeting her, which was led by a neo-Nazi, which in itself was, of course, crazy at the time because we didn't think that these type of things happened today in today's time because it was something that you would like read about or one of those things you didn't think that would ever happen to you. And I know that's a really big thing where people are always like, oh, I didn't know it could happen to me until it happened to me, which is completely true. Yeah, so basically the troll storm turned went from online to offline where they were saying that they were going to come to our apartment, they knew where we lived, and just basically threats from someone that we had never met, we had never heard of before. And we're like, why do these people hate us? And they've never even met us, we've never interacted with them. So when I found a lot of that information online, it kind of made me realize like, wow, there, there are still bad people in the world that are pretty much still like out to get you in today's 
day and age. So it was really scary experience. And that's what led me to looking at a lot of this online content, led me to getting my master's in terrorism and homeland security policy. And then just even my work with peril and everything and getting a little bit into the field because it is it is a very hard field to get into because it's very it's a very niche topic and everything. So um, I actually wrote fan mail to um, one of my favorite authors, Pete seeing me at the time, and I I didn't think he was going to respond or anything. And I told him, like, yeah, like, I love your work and all this different type of stuff. And then from there, he just um, would send me different types of readings. He introduced me to Cynthia um, at Peril, told me a little bit more about Peril, and I sent fan mail to Cynthia, like, oh, my gosh, like, I love your work as well and all this stuff. And um, now I work I work at Peril. I've been here for quite some time. I started here as a grad fellow, and now I work here full time. So I've been here for quite some time. And that's a, pretty much my backstory about how I got involved with this work and just like my personal connection of what makes me want to get up in the morning and look at this bot, bad content and just ensuring that nobody ever has to go through the experience that Taylor and I went through because it very it was really scary, especially at the time when we're 18 and 19 years old, um, living on our own for the first time. So I would never want anybody else to feel like that. Academics conducting research into sensitive topics such as terrorism and violent extremism can face online harassment, threats, and other forms of abuse. I asked Kisa to explain some of the ways researchers are targeted, both on and offline. Yeah, so they'll dox you by putting your personal information online, swatting, which is a very big one these days where people call in a false threat to your home or wherever you may be and SWAT teams or police or whoever, law enforcement officers will pretty much just bust down your door guns blazing, pointed at you, which has resulted in many deaths, unfortunately. While some people think, oh, it's just a game and I'm doing it to be funny, people have lost their lives because of it. Um, You have troll storms and like harassment where whoever might send like their followers or fan base after you, which can be very scary as well because you don't know what those people are capable of and they'll attack you from all different angles, all platforms, and you don't even know if those people are like your next door neighbors or whoever it may be, which makes it even scarier when it comes to a lot of these anonymous platforms, and even just people that make sock puppet accounts to troll you. You never know who these people exactly are. They could be someone that has like a vendetta against you in real life who just wants to join in on the action. So never knowing who these people necessarily are in person is something that is also very scary. And she says these online trolls are increasingly adept at hiding their real identities. So a lot of the times, depending on the platform, they'll be like anonymous where you won't um, necessarily get like a username, but you'll get maybe like a string of numbers, whatever it may be. So that's one way that they'll evade detection. I mean, of course, there's ways to figure out who it is, but it would take quite some time. But another method they'll use is using like numbers as letters and letters as numbers and using like different codes like that, which is very, is very specific. And it's one of those things where it's kind of like, if you know, you know, to the average person, it might just look like something you would scroll past. But to researchers, it's definitely something that they're doing on purpose to evade that detection. It's a very smart tactic, I will say. Terrorists and extremists are rational actors. 
which Martha Crenshaw proved in one of her articles. But it is something where it's kind of like, if you know, you know, and if you and if you don't know, then you're just going to scroll right past it and think nothing of it. But to people like me and to people that study these different type of topics, it's something that is a very major red flag. And even right now at Harvard, I'm doing a project um, as part of the Rebooting Social Media cohort where I'm looking at coded language on fringe and also mainstream uh, social media platforms to do like an analysis of that. And then just seeing how things have changed over time, because if you see something online today, it might not be the same tomorrow and it just evolves over time and it just goes from one place to another. So it's a very interesting phenomenon to look at. Whilst it's often difficult for researchers to separate the emotional impact of their work from their personal lives, in Keisa's experience, it's really important to take precautions and step back. It does sometimes get you bogged down a little bit because you are looking at bad things all day, every day. And you also run the risk of falling into those never ending rabbit holes because you find something that might be interesting or something you want to look more into, which leaves you down this toxic rabbit hole where sometimes even though you know this content is very problematic and very um, bad for your mental health, sometimes you have to know like when to step away because you can go into that never ending rabbit hole because you found something cool and you want to be sometimes maybe like the first to discover it. It is very challenging. So having to know like when to step back a little bit, not even a little bit, a lot, and having like time constraints on a lot of the content that you do look at. And then just also in terms of identity, you can't, of course, portray how you are like in real life that like, oh, I am a woman. I am black. I'm looking at this content. I'm like, I'm even though you all want to hurt me and I go against like your ideologies and your beliefs and everything, having to kind of put your, who you are in person kind of like aside, it's very hard sometimes because you shouldn't have to feel like you have to hide who you are as a person to get the work done that you want to do. But it's also just as a safety precaution as well. Um, In terms of safety, of course, you have to have different types of personal safety for physical safety and then also just computer safety in terms of cybersecurity. And that's just as being like a research and just for good practices, but then also being a woman, that's another layer. And then being Black is a whole nother layer. So just having to be very cautious and cognizant about the different places I am going online, but then even being on Twitter and social media in itself, because I do write a lot of articles, podcasts, give quotes and everything like that, just ensuring that the people that are on my social media are there with good intentions and not there as malicious actors that are there pretty much to target me because of the work that I do. Olivier also highlights the important role gender plays in the mental health of researchers in this field. I think gender is very, very important in this because I can imagine that if you go, for example, to an incel forum and you have to read these toxic messages for hours and hours and you read that women are threatened with rape and violence, if you are a woman, I think it will affect you much more than if you are a man. I mean, it also (laughs) affects me and it's very depressing to read all these toxic messages. But I think if you are a woman and you feel that this could also happen to you because sometimes these people directly threaten researchers that it will impact you more. I don't know how we have to deal with this. Should we 
remove female researchers from this topic. I think that's also not a solution, but it is something that we should really keep an eye on how we are going to deal with these very specific situations. Kisa adds that there are a number of practical strategies researchers can use to create distance between their work and home life, which can help when regularly viewing harmful content online. In terms of looking at the content, sometimes I find that uh, setting timers and knowing that I'm looking at this content for a particular reason and not just falling down rabbit holes and looking for content just for the sake of it can be very toxic behavior in addition to the time constraints I have a little dog, so I'll play with my little dog and stuff sometimes to kind of get that break a little bit. And then also just finding like different hobbies outside of looking at the content and just knowing when to step away and when to close your computer and to take time for mental health, time for life outside of work. So having to separate the two, which can be very hard because, of course, I love the work that I do. So sometimes it feels more as unfortunately like a hobby. It felt like at some at some times compared to just work because I love the work that I do so much and want to, of course, have some type of change in the world. Just finding little hobbies that aren't related to terrorism, extremism, white supremacy, anything that's like related to bad content. So how do organizations better protect researchers whose work exposes them to terrorist and violent extremist content, hateful narratives, and online harassment? Olivier says organizations need to support their team from the moment a job advert goes out. I think the first and maybe the most important measure that an organization can take is to raise awareness on the risks and show also that they take mental health very seriously. This starts with a job ad, continues during the hiring process and continues throughout the whole project or uh, and the employment. By the last, I mean that a simple question from a manager checking in on a, on a junior researcher, how they are coping with this, will make them feel understood. And should they, hopefully not, when they have to approach their superior seeking for mental su- support, that they would feel comfortable. Secondly, and probably the measure that will push us uh, the most forward, is that organizations should make it standard to budget mental health supporting research proposals. I regularly hear that organizations do the best they can, but also they cannot afford mental health experts from outside the organizations. So this could be avoided when it would become a standard practice to include a budget for mental health support in the working package uh, of a project. So that way they show as an organization that they take this seriously and that they will support us if something should go wrong. Olivier's research revealed that everyone processes the harmful content they see online differently. But having an open dialogue is key. The most important thing that I have learned from my research project is that everybody's tolerance level is different. There were participants who monitored online extremism and terrorism for only a few hours a week, and they still reported some serious effects. And others who monitored more than 30 hours a week, they said that it only influenced them a little bit or not even at all. But what was very clear in the outcome of of my survey was that the group who was exposed more than 10 hours a week suffered significantly more uh, from complaints right after exposure as well as long-term. Therefore, I think 
an individual prevention plan is something that is very personal and really depends on our specific situation. There's no one size fits all plan to separate emotional impact from our personal life. So we really do not need to search for a formula that will work for all of us. I think it's more important to implement preventative measures that still make us comfortable while we are doing this uh, research. For example, there are researchers who um, remove every personal object, like photos from their desk before they start investigating um, graphic content, or others change the, the table cover that they have on, on their desk with two different colors, not to make an association with a situation when they uh, investigate uh, the content. But there are a few very simple basic measures that everybody can take to mitigate this and, and to protect ourselves, such as taking regular breaks, taking coffee breaks and lunches away from your screen, um, go for a walk in the neighborhood, don't use headphones when you analyze videos or, or watch the content late at night. Basically, every measure to avoid being continuously submerged in the content. Olivier believes breaking the stigma and providing a safe space for colleagues to be supported and speak openly about their experiences is one of the first steps to protecting researchers' mental health. And he says he started to see a shift in attitudes in recent years. It's very important that we talk about it and stop researchers saying that they are alone in this. Every single participant in my study uh, reported that the exposure to extremist and terrorist content had an influence in some way on their life. In uh, some way, this was very intrusive in their lives. For example, uh, people experiencing nightmares, um, avoiding crowded places or places that are vulnerable to terrorism, or they became very cynical. Uh, when I started as a, as a counter-terrorism detective at the police, none of my superiors ever warned me that I would have to investigate decapitation videos. And when I had to, none of my superiors ever asked if I or my colleagues were okay with it and never proactively asked or offered uh, any assistance. And on top of that, should I have indicated that I wanted to speak some, uh, to someone about it, I would have been looked upon as a weak link in the team. So I think it's very important for organizations to create every fortnight or every month a moment where the whole team sits together and discusses what they've seen and maybe how they feel about it. So people do not think that they, they are the only ones who um, are sometimes affected by, by what they see. Depending on the needs of the researchers or the people of the team, this could also be followed up during uh, regular one-on-one -on -one sessions, for example. If they are not comfortable telling everything in, in, in a group, they can uh, have this also in private uh, with someone. I must admit that things are changing very slowly, but they are changing. And of course, in some organizations, it goes much faster than in others. But I'm very happy to see that more and more research is done by a very wide uh, range of organizations. Um, but also smaller companies like the one that I work for, TextGain, shows um, continuously that they are aware of the risks and if there should be a problem, that they are there to support us. But I think the main thing is to ensure people, researchers, that there is a support network should they need it. So yes, I think we are taking huge steps forward, but I think also that there is so much more we can do on an organizational level. Kisa says when it comes to academic researchers, more could be done to protect them from the impacts of viewing harmful content online. I definitely think that that is something that we need to do more of. 
not just as counterterrorism researchers and extremist researchers, but just as a whole community, mental health is very important because it can lead to long-term effects. And even just in academia, you're looking at different types of content for long hours and maybe working on papers, PhD students and grad students, whatever it may be. And you just become stressed and bogged down because of the different types of content you're looking at online, but then also that can transfer to offline spaces. So I definitely think that we are unfortunately a long way from the mental health aspect because we focus so much on researcher online safety that we're not thinking about the physical effects that it can have on our mental abilities, capacity, because some people you always hear about being diagnosed with like depression, anxiety, and different types of mental illness sometimes just because of the content that they look at because it can be harmful. And some people it does get to, some people who say it doesn't get to them, it does catch up with you eventually when you don't necessarily know it. So it is something that definitely needs to be paid more attention to. I think that investing in therapy um, is definitely something big while you're able to talk to someone that may not understand the work right now, but they understand you as a whole and they um, are trained professionals to know what the long-term effects may be, short-term effects, but then also just having like a cohort of researchers that you trust to kind of go to because you're all you are all looking at similar content or similarly aligned content so you understand what everybody is going through. So having those different types of outlets to look at as well is really important. And then also sometimes if you need to, just taking like a mental health day is something that's really important. Um, I know for some employers, it might be something that they can't maybe like afford to do because they can't afford to like lose their workers for maybe like a day or two. But when you're looking at such harmful content, it is something that employers do need to invest in and understand that it is for the well-being of your researchers. Because if people get bogged down, the work is kind of like getting to them. It um, bleeds into your personal life as well. So it's just really important that you have people to talk to and some type of outlet, a hobby, and just understanding employers that understand that people do go through things and we are still human at the end of the day, but definitely therapy services and someone within the field to talk to about the different types of content you're seeing. And she says tech companies need to take more seriously threatening behavior online, in particular, the context behind these posts. Yeah, tech companies can definitely do it better. I've had one experience on, I won't name them, a social media platform where it was in the middle of a troll storm and I was reporting a lot of like the information that was being sent to me. And the platform came back to me and said, this doesn't violate our guidelines, but it really did violate their guidelines. But I guess if you don't have the specific context of what's being said around all of that, you wouldn't necessarily understand. But it was it was a threat and, I, and it wasn't looked into seriously because it didn't go against their guidelines that they said. But when you look into the context and you understand the meaning of it, it would be classified as a threat. So I think that social media platforms need more understanding of the context of different things, especially when it comes to reporting content, because it might not look like something to you, but it's something that is specific to maybe like a certain community. Like if someone 
um, as a black person, if someone sent me a, a picture of like a noose or something like that, that to me, that's a threat. But to someone else, that might be a threat, but not very, like, maybe like not very credible. They might be like, oh, that's just, I don't know, maybe it's like a joke or something like that. But definitely looking more into the context to protect uh, vulnerable populations. But then also just when things do happen, and especially when it comes to like reporting different incidents, kind of like circling back a little bit more and providing transparency compared to just saying, oh, your report has information has been taken into account. We're locking down whatever account was harassing you. And that's the end of what you might hear. So more resources for helping individuals that are targeted by far-right populations. And then also just bringing sometimes vulnerable population, victimized populations to like the table when it comes to making suggestions, when it comes to like their policies and everything. Because a lot of the time, a lot of these companies are just making the policies just from their standpoint. And you don't necessarily know who's sitting at the table with them. So having different viewpoints and having various demographics, people from coming from different backgrounds at the table to provide insight into uh, their policies that they might be looking to enforce because a lot of us will be the ones that are on the other end of these policies by wanting to like report something or whatever it may be. But if we're not at the table, how can we help change the problem instead of just reporting content constantly and having to see that it didn't violate guidelines? Here at Tech Against Terrorism, we're continuing to work towards solutions which we hope will give better protection to content moderators, academics, and practitioners' mental health. Through the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform, or TCAP, we warn content moderators when material is graphic in nature when we send alerts. In addition, when we release the archive of verified terrorist content, we will have features that aim to protect welfare as much as we can, such as through blurring graphic material. Finally, our entire team has access to specialist counselling and other professional support, with particular focus on preventing and mitigating vicarious trauma. A huge thank you to Olivier and Kisa for their input and openness in discussing today's topic. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in the new year with a brand new episode. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced and edited by Philip Aguiu. Sound design by Oli Guiu. Music by Rowan Bishop.